0: everyone and welcome to the European Startup Show's special March Women Series. In recognition of International Women's Day, I'm featuring a few amazing women entrepreneurs of Europe. Now how many times have you gone into a fridge and discovered food items past its expiry date but that look and smell perfectly fine? Expiry dates on food simply don't work, with an estimated 60% of food thrown out in the UK alone that is perfectly safe to consume. Wouldn't it be great if we had smart labels that told us when food actually goes bad? Well, my guest today is Solvega Paksteta, founder and director of Mimica, whose mission is to reduce food waste with a groundbreaking food expiry label that allows consumers to monitor freshness with a simple touch. Solvega has won numerous awards and prizes for her invention, including the UK's James Dyson Award. She's also earned a spot among MIT's 35 innovators under 35 in Europe. I'm so pleased to have her on my show today. Welcome,
1: Solvega. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today.
0: So I understand that you studied industrial design from Brunel University and you initially got the idea for developing a visual cue for expired food when you're doing some research on problems faced by blind and visually impaired people who have to use public transport. When I was listening to this on another podcast that you have done, how did you go from finding out about public transport and how visually impaired people use public transport to chancing upon the fact that expiry foods is an issue for them?
1: Actually, the two um, are completely combined because during the project, I was one of the user researchers that was investigating the issues with public transportation for people who have visual impairments and whether technology could be used to solve some of these issues. So aside from doing interviews, regular consumer research, we also went really in-depth and did passenger kind of travel alongs and and experiences. So we would uh, often meet participants that we were working with at their homes or wherever they were traveling from and literally shadow their journeys recording all of the elements of that. So we covered short and long journeys. So especially on those long journeys, after half an hour, you've asked all your research questions. You still have maybe three hours until you get to their train ride destination until your research kicks in again. So we had lots of opportunities to have some really great chats about life in general, and I used it as an opportunity to be incredibly nosy and ask about different aspects about how they do various things. So I would ask them things like, how do you get dressed in the morning without looking ridiculous how do you match your clothes so I'd always wondered I'd ask how do you know how much milk to put in their tea because everyone likes a different amount I don't know if I'm just the only waiter who's thought about these things but I really wanted to ask how they get around this kind of stuff and the answers were just so interesting and uh, in some cases people just shop for clothes in a specific color palette and they know that everything's going to go together or other ones that really like to express their personality and and have different colors they might buy a device called a spectrometer that they click a button and it, it reads out loud the color of the clothing and it's really cool it would even say like navy with white stripes like accurate. it's really good and then for tea some had gadgets that you can stick in and there was a slider that when it made contact it would beep but other ones said like, I don't need no technology I just stick my finger in and when it reaches a certain knuckle that's how they like it so I think it was at that point that made me realize that not everyone goes at the world in the same way. And that's why it's really important to bring in an inclusive perspective. And I fell in love with the idea of inclusive design, which is the idea that if you make something easy enough for someone with a certain disability to use it, you make it even easier for people without that disability to use it. And um, a really good example of this is the audio announcements on public transportation. They were initially developed for people for visual impairments, But I mean, who hasn't found those useful? And uh, I know they've saved me multiple times from missing my stop. So, so yeah, kind of long story short, it was kind of through these conversations that I ended up asking about expiry dates and uh, on on long train journeys. And there's no good solution. Where's the hack after all of our previous conversations? And they were like, no, it's a really big issue. And and the only workaround I have is that I buy really long life food. And They were having expected negative health consequences for this uh, remarkable group of people. And I started digging into the numbers and I found a disproportionate number of people with visual impairments suffer from being overweight and, and having diabetes because of the lack of access. Two things that I hadn't joined together before, this kind of lack of expiry information or accessible expiry information was actually having a direct health consequence so that's when I decided that's what I would focus my research question about.
0: I guess at that time in your research, you didn't have to think about how big of a problem is this? Is this really a big enough market? Because what you were trying to do from research perspective was to see if there was a solution to this problem. You didn't have to figure out if the market was attractive or anything like that. Right.
1: Well, I didn't in theory, you know, because it was a university project. But from the get go, I knew that the solution couldn't be just a solution for people with experiencing that specific problem of people with visual impairments. Because I knew that realistically, that market wouldn't be large enough, even though it wasn't a requirement on my course to think about it that way. I was like, well, it's not going to benefit me to design something that actually would never be a real solution in the world. So I knew that it had to add value to the mass market as well, if it would be considered as a solution. Quite naturally, just doing my research into expiry dates, I realized how linked they were to food waste and the fact that they're not serving anybody. Uh, And I I was finding that 60% of people, roughly, don't believe them at all and don't look at them. And so it's not serving them. And f- about 40% of people have complete blind faith in the expiry date and, and won't go a day over. or You might even throw something away the day before, like the date. And so for them, it's not serving them either because they're throwing away perfectly good food and that 60% of the food that we throw away is still perfectly edible. So in my mind, it, there's no one that this date is serving. Like The likelihood of that date actually hitting... The moment that the food spoils is so minute, and yet you know a large popula sizable portion of the population actually are are making their decision based on that, and those dates are there to to protect consumers, and that 's why they are a bit shorter because we have to operate by the worst case scenario. So I also feel for the food producers who have to put them there because they don't want to make anyone ill. But in most cases, people are uh, storing their food properly. So it is a bit of a tricky situation. I knew at that point there had to be a better system for it.
0: 60% is a huge number just for UK alone. And I I actually read that in US, it's 90% of that food waste gets thrown away because of the expiry labels. But why aren't other people solving this problem? Was there other ways that this was being solved? And maybe you came up with an innovative way? Why weren't big companies solving this problem?
1: I think other solutions in this kind of area have been looked at before. Unfortunately, I believe that they were over-engineered and therefore too expensive. Was the technology state of the art, of the art and fantastic and, and worked every time. Absolutely. But unfortunately it was using materials and technologies like printed electronics specialist inks that are one both harmful they shouldn't really be disposable and and two they were just too expensive to implement on a unit level so actually some of these solutions are starting to exist but they're too expensive to put on what's called primary packaging which is the packaging that you and I take home from the supermarket but it is actually started to be put on secondary packaging so like maybe the crate 50 packs go into to just make sure that the supply chain is is working properly but more than Uh, half of food waste occurs in the home. So it's such a missed opportunity to not put this kind of information on primary packaging. So I knew that uh, what we do at Mimica had to be from a cost-first perspective in order to be able to achieve the scale, in order to have the impact that we want to have. So I, I almost felt it was pointless to just get something that works perfectly at any cost because then no one will implement it.
0: So once you had the idea, then you developed it as part of your research project. I know that you talked to various disciplines to figure out if there was a material that could emulate the spoilage characteristics, et cetera, and you developed this product. At what point did you go from this is research to this has commercialization potential? How do you think about the timing?
1: I think... For me, I wasn't ever planning on starting a company, but the first seed that was sown was, um, actually, it was still when I was designing my research project at university. And um, we did something called an industry review evening where they invited designers from industry to put up an exhibition of like just really early concepts we were about halfway through our final year and it was their job to guide us and give us some advice our product now is a a very elegant label that changes from smooth to bumpy exactly at the right time and and it's nicely packaged this is not what i was presenting on this industry review there's no way this would have ever worked but it Doesn't matter because this was the thing that led me to the final solution. I knew I wanted a texture response, but that everyone could use and everyone would find useful. And my idea was like, if I curled a piece of very thin plastic, like a ribbon, it would want to curl. I stuck it down to the package using some kind of natural glue that would decay in time with the food spoiling, and that was already mimicking idea coming in, but that the, the curl would kind of move along on the package you know, in response to how quickly the food was spoiling. It was still an indicator, but like, there's no way a, a curl would stay that tight. It would be flapping all over the place. The main idea was like the nat- the idea of the kind of some sort of natural glue and that like it going in time with the food. So I, one of the designers I was speaking to was a packaging designer and uh, bless him, I was so passionately telling him about this because I hadn't realized how terrible it was at that point. <laughs> and he was like this is really something, you should protect this. And uh, I was like, what do you mean by protect? I was aware of what a patent was, but I just never thought it applied to someone like me. And he was like, yeah, you should really think about protecting your idea. And I think that was the first seed that, you know, I could maybe develop this after university. That's exactly what I did. I had some leftover scholarship money from the James Dyson Foundation, um, who sponsored my final project. So because prototypes that I was building almost cost me nothing, I spent most of that on filing my first patent. At that stage, I wasn't planning on on turning it into a company, but I I decided to enter it into something called the James Dyson Award and entered probably an hour before it closed and, and forgot about it. And I started doing an internship and I got a call second week into that internship telling me that I'd I'd won so that was completely unexpected and that actually it was market demand as a response to the press that I got from the award that turned this into an exciting opportunity what was the right time it was customers actually asking for this and Hmm. saying if you make this we will buy it from you so That's what made it clear for me, but I think I needed to figure out if something like this was actually possible because by the time I'd created a very early version of Mimica Touch, like as the label, I didn't even know if something like this was possible to manufacture at scale. So I I knew I needed to take the next steps and build a team and, and get someone who's a scientist in the team. I mean, I was learning as much as I could on the science, but I knew I couldn't take it the whole way.
0: (laughs) Your initial funding for your prototyping and whatever you did was through the grant. And then you raised a seed round of funding. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so I was grant funded for quite a significant period of time. And it was actually working with a business consultant that I learned how to write my first grants and kind of telling the narrative and story of what i was doing in a way that makes sense to whoever was looking to fund it so i think that was a critical thing that i learned basically how to pitch your business really but yeah so it was funded like that for a while that's tri- tricky because you win like 5000 pounds 1000 pounds 500 pounds and then 10000 pounds again and like it's all very much like a patchwork and i realized that really affected my decision making i was thinking in the short term because that's all i could see I realized that I had to raise the money because I was starting to understand that it was going to be years, not months, of product development to, to pull off something that's this groundbreaking. And uh, I I realized that I wasn't making high quality decisions by being forced to think short term. Mm. That's what led my decision to really want to pull in a significant amount of money for our seed round in. We ended up raising that um, about 1.75. Uh, million pounds in in a seed round that we closed last March, thank goodness, just before the pandemic hit the UK. But actually, since then, we we actually have brought on some further grants. There's lots that kind of are there to kind of help start your business. So definitely eked out all of those. And then there's the next part of grants, which is more project-based and bringing positive things and that are a bit more proven and um, want to really fund startups working with corporates to launch something. So those are the types of grant fundings that we're able to go after now that really helps support the shareholder value and the investors that we have on board. They're really pleased obviously that we can stretch their support as far as possible. And similarly for the government who's funding us, like they're really happy that we're also funded by our investors. So it's a really good situation for both parties.
0: Do you have someone dedicated full time since you're doing this grants like seems like an ongoing basis? Or is that something
1: you do? Yes, that's something that we brought in last January and actually we hadn't intended on this happening, but we knew that we wanted to. After a kind of a long break of not applying for any grants, we thought that we'd reach that kind of position where we could go after these larger ones that are a bit more strategic and about launching products, etc. And uh, we actually hired a business intern and what we were looking for specifically was writing skills. A girl called Alex joined our team initially as an intern and her writing was absolutely fantastic and really kind of was impressive in terms of like project planning, could like put spreadsheets together. So we actually ended up offering her a full-time job after the internship and brought her on board as a project support and I'm really pleased to say that she um, achieved another promotion towards the end of last year. She's now a project coordinator. It's a really nice example of like in a startup that you can make your mark and make yourself become really invaluable where we were like, okay, well, she's not going anywhere.
0: Where did you find people like that?
1: We have a pretty comprehensive recruiting strategy. So we try to promote our positions in as many different places as possible keeping diversity in mind and kind of thinking about where my people who might not hear about these kind of opportunities hear about these I can share my full list maybe you can put in the show notes we've developed a network and, and we have some good relationships with some places where we promote so I don't remember where specifically she applied from but I think The the key is not just to post the job in one place.
0: The reason I'm asking is because I actually had some people who listened to my podcast write to me and they said that they want to hear more about how and when entrepreneurs scale their teams. When did you hire? Who did you hire? When did you scale? Was an area that other entrepreneurs were interested in getting more case studies and examples of. So maybe you could talk about how you thought about building your team and scaling?
1: For about the first year and a half, I was on my own and was terrified of bringing anyone into my mess. I was really resistant to the idea of of hiring, even like an intern. I, I didn't even believe that anyone would want to work with me on it. That was a confidence thing. I'd never done this business thing before, so I didn't feel like I could manage someone. But I have to say it was a mentor of mine who sat me down and it was like, listen, your aim of what you're trying to achieve is so massive. You're trying to overhaul the food information system for the food industry. You cannot do this alone. you are eventually going to have to bring someone into, as you call it, your mess. So I think that kind of stiff talking to from a, a very well meaning mentor was what I needed to hear and uh, they actually helped me then review some of the applicants and And uh, I, I knew the first person I needed to hire was a chemist and uh, yeah I made my my first hire and uh, I wish I hadn't waited a year and a half to be honest. Yeah. I actually had grant funding in the bank, like so I, I shouldn't have been waiting but I think the right time just to give the advice is like you you should bring in some money so you can offer a little bit it doesn't have to be a lot even if you cover someone's expenses at the start it depends on what level you're bringing someone in I didn't find the right person to be a co-founder I think that's an important thing to say I think it's better to be a sole founder than have the wrong co-founder So for me, I was literally looking for people to join my team as employees in a way. So for that, you need money. So I think it is a different situation if you found the right co-founder. And I I think if they're willing to put in sweat equity and maybe you cover a bit of their expenses, that's fine. But if you're looking to make a hire, that is a bit more of a substantial commitment. And you need to make sure that uh, you've brought in, whether it's grant funding or a bank loan or early stage investment to, to support that. But my main advice is to grow as slowly as you can, especially at the start. You think of startups, you think of explosive growth. And one of the biggest mistakes that I see companies making is that they hire a salesperson or a sales team far too early. Actually, Mimica still at the stage that we're at where we're nine full-time team members. We have interns as well, but it's a core team of nine people. And we've raised all this money and our product is basically at the scaling stage, but we still don't have anyone in our team that's just doing sales uh, or marketing for that matter. I think that is the job of the co-founding team to sell your product at the start. And really the only time we're going to be hiring a salesperson is once we've made our first proper sale, where it's not just like on a trial basis anymore, that they're going to be an ongoing customer. And we've built that into a case study and then we can give the salesperson a really strong case study. And you don't want to oversell as well. And then the product development is lagging behind because that's just going to frustrate both the salesperson and the customers who've been promised something. I think that's kind of a big pitfall that I see people making. But another thing, just like something I believe in terms of hiring is I know people are desperate to get people on to help them sometimes as soon as possible, but I feel like unpaid internships are not the way to do that. If you feel that someone's going to bring about real value to your company, they should be paid for their work. What you mean? whether that's minimum wage or a bit more, they should be paid for their work. I think the culture of unpaid internship perpetuates income inequality because it's people with families that can support an unpaid internship that end up getting the interesting, valuable experience and then being able to talk about those experiences to get their like big opportunity later. And by just not offering a salary, you kind of automatically close out a vast proportion of what uh, what you're able to offer. So I think we talk about diversity in hiring, thinking about where you're advertising that role at the start and really making an effort to create relationships with networks that are going to give you access to people who might not often hear about opportunities like this, then you need to actually pay people properly to make it viable for them. And then after you get them in, you need to keep them there. So making sure that there's opportunities to grow. So let me see if I can
0: recap some of the main points you made. Mm -hmm. One of the things you said is don't hire sales too quickly. It should be founder-led sales. Founders should be doing marketing and sales till you have proper sales that you're going to have long-term customers and something to give to other salespeople that they can go and scale. Hire people as employees if you don't find someone who you think is the right co-founder in terms of complementary skills and and personality probably um, we'll get into this a bit more. but don't hire a co-founder, hire somebody who's an employee and pay them, don't do unpaid even if it is minimum wage and the other thing that you said is about advertising in a lot of different places so that you get a diversity of candidates for every position you're considering
1: did i cover That's most great. of the most of the key things you said absolutely it's such a complicated issue and i'd be lying to say if, if we were nailing it and getting it yeah. right but uh, i've certainly learned a lot about hiring and recruiting since my first steps.
0: So of the nine people, what does that composition look like today?
1: In the product team, we have five people. And on the other side, the commercial side, if you want to call it, there's four of us. As you can see, the focus is is very much on product and, and research and development. In the product team, we have both engineers, designers, and then food scientists, chemists. Yeah. And on the commercial side? What are the four? Myself, the the CEO, we have a um, business and HR support yeah, and, uh, and also our, our project coordinator.
0: Okay, let's keep in, in the theme of hiring. I know that you brought in a CEO. I've not had someone on my podcast yet who's done that. And I'm really curious to hear why you decided to do it, when you decided to do it, and how you found this person. Can you just walk us through
1: that? Yeah, definitely. So as I was mentioning before, I had heard absolute horror stories, not just from folklore, from actual friends who I knew as co-founders and would have horrific fallouts, friendship ending fallouts. Sometimes they were friends already, sometimes they had become friends as part of the business, of course. But And then I've been left in many awkward positions where I was friends, obviously, with both of them. And then there's just seeing that like and hearing about the nastiness that can go on after you've picked the wrong person, then there's a rift. I just didn't want to risk that. And I hadn't found anyone who I could comfortably say that I, I wanted to be in a partnership with. I was a sole founder for a really long time. However, I was really lacking someone to bounce ideas with because while it's really important to run a transparent company at the same time you're not going to be like hey guys guys I don't know what I'm doing and also we're going to run out of money so they're all going to (laughs) leave yeah
0: (laughs) yeah it's a lonely job there are a lot of things you can't really share
1: Exactly. And because this was my first time doing this, I didn't come from a business background at all. It was taking me probably five times longer than it might someone with experience to make every decision. And and when you're having to make a hundred decisions a day, it was um, creating a lot of mental fatigue for myself. I might have actually been making the right decisions, but because I didn't have anyone to bounce ideas. And sure, I had mentors and I was a very promiscuous mentee, but it's not the same thing a mentor you kind of book a session i don't know once a month or something right. like that i didn't have anyone to just like mm-hmm. call up and annoy <laughs> without having set up a formal engagement yep. if you get what i mean so i was really missing that kind of partner and uh, and someone with some business experience looking back I didn't do a bad job but because I didn't have that validation of whether my decision making was correct I felt that I maybe was doing a terrible job if that makes sense so Hmm. I at the same time I wasn't actively looking for that part I was too busy head down making the 100 decisions a day but one of my mentors that I was alluding to that was a meeting up with on an informal basis was a guy who was a CTO of a company in a quite a similar field, a company called It's Fresh. And they were trying to reduce food waste by extending the shelf life of fruits and berries by actually creating these smart filter papers that absorb the ethylene from the fruit, which is a natural ripening hormone. So the proposition was actually really similar. They, they reduce food waste by actually extending the shelf life of it, which is absolutely amazing. And he was from a chemistry background and he knew how to scale chemistry. And I was just learning so much from our sessions in terms of Cost engineering, and that 's really when he kind of confirmed my suspicions about no, you need to start from the cost to be able to achieve what ever you need to achieve in the market, and you work with your suppliers backwards from that cost point, and you may need to redesign the product to, to make it hit that cost mm. point so he was teaching me lots of valuable things like this and and the way we were actually introduced was from one of the lead technologists at uh, Marks & Spencer. And that's because they were already selling their product into Marks & Spencer. After a couple of years like this, reached out to me and said, listen, we're actually selling up the company and uh, the CEO and I are exiting as a result. And uh, we'd really like to work together and help entrepreneurs learn from some of the mistakes we've made in this very kind of niche field of sustainability technology in the food sector. They said that they'd love to work with me as consultants. I think I had them scheduled in for a one hour meeting, but they came and we ended up speaking for three hours about their various stories and getting their products into Tesco, Walmart, Carphone, the roller coaster ride yeah. that was. And I was like, gosh, these guys really know what they're talking about and I need to get them involved. So they started working with me as consultants and didn't really have that much money at the start, but I made it work and we did an equity deal as well. So really important, but we agreed some milestones. If they hit milestone A, I would release this much equity to them. If they did even better, then they'd get even more equity. So we set up that kind of incentive Mm. structure in lieu of a salary because I... Couldn't offer that at that time. Uh, The guy who was the previous CEO of It's Fresh, I think we'd agreed one day a week because that's all I could really afford them for. But he started showing up to the office every day. And I was like, Lawrence, what are you doing? It's not what we agreed. Like, I can't afford this. (laughs) And he was like, no, 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 it's it's fine. Don't worry. He was just so into it. He got sucked in. And actually he was thinking I've had a really great career. He said he had set up and sold multiple uh, and they were all in the impact space companies. And uh, this, it's fresh company was going to be his last one. And he was going to do some consulting and enjoy his retirement as he very well deserved. (laughs) But uh, he ended up getting sucked into Mimica showing up every day, telling me not to worry about it. It was clear that I was just learning so much from, from being around his experience. And I think he was really great at empowering me and re- me realizing that I had been making the right calls and, and some of the right decisions, but also some of the wrong ones too. And he helped me correct some of those. After a while, uh, about nine months of working with both these uh, amazing individuals, I invited them both to formally join the company, not just as external consultants, but as CEO and CTO of the company. Obviously for that to happen, I could no longer be uh, founder and CEO, So that was a pretty easy decision to, well, actually what I initially thought was going to be an easy decision to step aside. When that first happened, a lot of people got in touch and they asked, are you okay? I heard that you're not CEO anymore. Are you having a mental breakdown? (laughs) I think it was really interesting. It was the people who'd met me most recently that were the most surprised, but the people who knew me from university. They were like, of course, you're the designer. Did he want to come in
0: as the CEO or were there other roles that he could have come in as? Could you not have been the CEO and could he not have been COO? Why did you make the the decision to have him be the CEO?
1: At that time, I didn't really have a really good understanding of variations in these C-level positions would be. That doesn't mean I made the wrong decision. I think what I did understand is that a CEO leads the direction and strategy of a company and leads on the fundraising, things like that. And these are all skill sets that Lawrence had in spades. And he's the one who came in and really helped establish the mission and values of the company as well, which I now kind of really take care of and and run. But he he just had a lot of experience in in being a CEO, like that was his his previous experience. So uh, I was completely exhausted out of everyone looking at me saying, like, you're CEO, you must know. And I'm like, I know nothing. (laughs) So I think... It was just a combination of things. It was me not wanting that position anymore and him having that exact experience in the past. I, I was a little bit worried because he built the company into something greater that there might be like a bit of a culture clash. But I, I reminded myself that actually he was the founding CEO. So he was there when it was just him and maybe his co-founder. So it makes him really perfect for this kind of time in the company in that really early scaling. He says that whenever things get settled, that's when he loses interest. It's the adrenaline uh, roller coaster that he wants to be a part of.
0: How do you make the relationship work for you and Lawrence on a day-to-day basis? Like on one hand, he has a lot of experience, but on the other hand, you also have a vision of where you want to take Mimica. Maybe because you already worked with him as a consultant, you were quite aligned on where you needed to go. But just on a day-to-day basis, how do you handle conflict? What is advice you would give to others who may be contemplating
1: having someone come in like this? You know, that's a really good question because that was the point that actually terrified me the most. Because even though I really recommend trying before you buy. If you are going to bring someone a bit more experience because inevitably you are going to have to give them some equity or pay them more than you've been able to pay other people before, whatever that might be. But finding a way to engage with them before you jump in with both the, I would say, I got to do that. Then working as consultants it wasn't really their role to step in and lead a team, you know, like that yeah. actually would have been overstepping the mark and then not overstepping the mark was part of the things that was important. Like it was a really big deal going from like just a sole founder to actually now inviting two new directors into the company who, let's face it, were an incredibly young, almost all female company at that point. And then two white middle-aged men were coming in. I was really worried about Culture Clash. Yeah. But I sat down for many long sessions and um, before the, the formal transition and we talked about our vision for the company, our values and how we would make decisions both in that this transition process and then after that. So in general, I think on a practical level, it has turned into co foundery type relationship. Lawrence is fine with being called CEO, he recognizes that I started the company and, and so I remain, my title remains founder and director. It's really interesting because, in, in some ways, I'm his boss because I've brought him in to run my company that I founded for me. But then, day to day, he's my boss because I've brought him in to run the company and I'm still part of that company. It, it, it then puts you kind of on a pretty level uh, playing field. And we do often have very different points of view and opinions on the way decisions should be made. Both of them have done the self-work and therapy to recognize their privilege and check themselves and be uh, really open-minded and respectful, which I don't think you're going to find that in every kind of typical who you think of as a business leader, if if, if you know what I mean really important i think um, i've learned so much about empathy patience kindness from lawrence i already thought that i was a pretty decent person but he's taught me even more to be patient with people that kind of thing then when we get to a conflict we actually actively listen to what the other person is saying and often if one person is more passionate about a situation than the other we'll just hand it over to the most passionate person because They've clearly done probably more research than the other person or feels. So sometimes what we default to, whoever feels strongest about it, we should just go with whatever they say. And I think the really interesting thing also is while our joint company mission is the same, we play to focus in slightly different areas of the same mission. So I'm really interested in the sustainability aspect, whereas Lawrence is really interested in tackling food poverty with our solutions. So I think having that as a, You know, reminder and the way we talk about things and the way we make decisions and having those different perspectives and all those different courses that we're championing is really interesting as well.
0: I think what I hear from you and why it may be working is because both you and Lawrence seem to have such self awareness of what you're good at and what you're not good at. And you're willing to be vulnerable about what you're not good at and let the other person lead potentially. And I think what you said about try before you buy obviously really helped you to know that you have that chemistry and that respect and that this could be a a relationship that works because you worked with him for nine months. And and obviously you also have complementary skills. There were a lot of things he brought in that you did not have. So it made the marriage, you know, seem to make sense at least.
1: Absolutely. That's right.
0: Okay. I don't think we have more time. So I'm just going to end the podcast here with the rapid round. I was going to ask you about how did you get your first few customers? Because that's another question that I always get asked by entrepreneurs. We have signed
1: our first year, but we're still scaling up for manufacturing and we need to officially launch it. So it's a bit different. I'll come back on the podcast in a year and we'll talk about that then. But just quickly, did they come because
0: they saw you in all this news and media and press? And so someone approached you? Or is it because of Lawrence and his connections having come from the same industry that brought in the first few beta customers, if you call them?
1: Yeah, when I think about our um, customer pipeline, I mean, we've developed a pipeline of over 100 interested customers that none of them have been through cold anything. <laughs> They've all come in various reasons, but some of them are because of Outreach. So speaking engagements, they heard about us in a podcast, heard about us in a press article. So that's the first way. The second way is the network effect. Maybe they know Lawrence. maybe they met me in a previous life and they're now in the right position. You know, they, do, they get in touch. But I think actually, what's been the most successful, especially in, in nailing our first initial customers, are warm introductions. So, through our various networks. For example, we took part in the Food Bites competition run by Rubber Bank, which is one of the biggest pitch competitions in the food and agriculture startup space. We actually won one year. So, we developed a really nice relationship with some of the people at RoboBank and uh, RoboBank being one of the main banks for food and agriculture companies. They were able to make some really interesting introductions to mostly CFOs because they're a bank. (laughs) But actually that that was a really interesting way of positioning the the value proposition from a Purely financial perspective. And then that's gotten us into some really good rooms. And that's actually how we ended up signing our first deal with our juice customer in Spain. It was through a warm introduction. I think that would be really
0: interesting for people to hear. I think I could definitely talk to you for another hour, Solvega. There's so (laughs) much to ask. I didn't even get into the whole product and which types of products you're first putting this on. There's so much to talk about. But I'm going to end the podcast. We'll go into this rapid round where I just ask you about other things. For example, Mm -hmm. like what book would you recommend? It it doesn't have to be necessarily entrepreneurship related, just books that
1: have made an impact on you. Okay. I think one of my favorite entrepreneurship books I've read is From Zero to One by Peter Thiel. I think that really demystifies a lot of the questions that we've been talking about uh, on the podcast today, and especially to do with like building a technology and how to make sure it's right for your customer and and a lot of these kind of early scaling issues.
0: Okay. What about your favorite European
1: city? Well, I'm biased, but I think realness in Lithuania (laughs) is... Definitely worth visiting, not only because of the beautiful old town and it's still kind of unexplored by tourists, but also there's a really exciting startup scene there, particularly in the tech space that's worth checking out.
0: Yeah, I've heard a lot about about the Baltics and the startup scene, definitely on my list of places to go. What about uh, a productivity tool? Do you have a tool that helps you be more productive?
1: Maybe not a tool, but a hack, if I can share one. Sure. I only answer yesterday's emails today. And the the reason for this is that whenever your concentration is broken, it takes about 20 minutes to build up your brain model on whatever you were working on before. So if you allow yourself, emails pop up or come in, and that means you're never going to get into that deep work mode and not be effective. So I allow myself to literally ignore all emails coming in today. And so when I sit down to do emails, I'm answering yesterday emails and there's a finite number of them because yesterday has finished. And so when I'm done with emails, I'm done for the day. And I give myself permission to ignore all the emails that are coming in today.
0: I love it. I have to try it because I do find myself getting distracted by these pop-ups and stuff.
1: That's been one of the biggest mind brain space savers for me. So sit down select all, everything that is in your inbox should only be from yesterday. And then I move it into a folder called action. And then that's the only emails I'm going to deal with that day. I love it.
0: (laughs) Okay. What about stress busting tip?
1: Especially during lockdown, I've been really enjoying going for a, a half an hour to an hour walk most mornings before I start work. I think it's really easy, especially if you're working on a crazy deadline or that kind of thing, you wake up and you're already adrenaline fueled. So I think getting some boots on and uh, I'm really lucky. I I have a nice green space just behind my house. So just walking and feeling the morning sunshine on your face just gives you just some perspective. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then you you come to your desk with a much clearer mind. So that's my top tip.
0: I love it. What about a favorite quote? It doesn't have to be your quote, but just a quote that you Live by, or you think about, or you say to your team.
1: Done is better than perfect is probably one that I uh, repeat a lot. It annoys the hell out of Lawrence, <laughs> <laughs> the perfectionist. And I think that's a good thing. So everyone's different, but that's a that's one that works for me.
0: I think you need the balance. In some cases, you do need to just say, "Let's get it out and see what happens, and test and iterate." And in some cases, you do have to pay a lot of attention to detail. So it's yeah. good you have that balance with you and your co-founder. Well, Vega, thank you so much for being on my show. I had such an interesting conversation. I didn't even see the time. We are over time a little bit. I apologize for that. But I truly appreciate you being on the show and sharing so many incredible insights, especially for early stage entrepreneurs. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show, and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, keep building.